when men don't trust women, women don't trust men, and everyone's just a little bit face blind. This is This Shakespeare is Gay, a podcast that goes week by week discussing why each and every Shakespeare play is a little bit gay. This week, much ado about nothing. child. <laughs> <laughs> We're here to talk about much ado about nothing. Um, hello. Hello. How did you how did you get on with this one? It's funny. I feel like this is a play that whenever I reread it, I'm like there are whole scenes of this I've literally never seen performed. Like people cut it a lot and they cut it the exact same way every time. Yes, yes. And even within scenes that do get performed, there are exchanges that you never hear. Yes. And that's, I mean, you know, like there are a whole little run. And, you know, having cut this play a couple times myself, it, it, and I know you have, it's, um, it's one where the runs of jokes come out really easily. So it's like yeah. you get this little run and then this one comes out. But no, I, I super enjoyed going back to it. Um, I love this play. My, my revelation of the, of the week is that I love this play. And I already knew that, but like, it's just so fun. I love the people in it. It's nonsense. I love it. It's a good one. It's a classic. Um, beloved by many because of the Kenneth Branagh and um, Emma Thompson film and also beloved by others because of the Catherine Tate and David Tennant uh, production that also was filmed. I think a lot of it, it translates well. Yeah. In, yeah, it does. It does. And I feel like everybody, I mean, it's one that I've certainly seen a lot. It's sort of it'll be forever produced because it's such a crowd pleaser. I mean, it's just such a quintessential romantic comedy, which is why I'm excited to look at it under this particular microscope today, because we've, I know separately and together thought a lot about much about nothing in the past, but never with the gay goggles on. Yes. Though. I mean, I feel like we spent some time talking about romantic comedies with gay goggles on um, last year. And so maybe I think we've been in training for this slightly challenging uh yeah installment but we're you know it's early days but we're going for it we're diving right in yeah 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 um and so shall we then just dive right in I think as before (laughs) yeah we're going to sort of take things a little bit act by act um and then sort of wrap everything up at the end and see where we've landed Mm -hmm. so Act one of Much Ado About Nothing. Some soldiers roll up in the idyllic Italian, like, village, city state of of Messina, and uh, encounter some ladies there. Uh Yeah, critically, some ladies who they already know. I think one of the chief ingredients of Much Ado is that it's people who have already met reuniting. Yeah, which is an unusual dynamic. Yes. in some ways in Shakespeare, at least for like men and women. I feel like you'll often get like guy yes. friends or girlfriends who already know each other. Actually, now that I say that, that I'm full. That's completely wrong. They know each other in <laughs> summer. Um, yeah. But yeah. there's long backstory, but it's interesting because it's like, here comes a team back yeah. from the war. Here's the home team. And then, the, you know, the mingling of the visit is like the backdrop of the whole play. I mean, do we just need to begin 
by talking for a second about the opening sequence of the Kenneth Branagh film. I was just going to say that, please, can we? Because, okay, so yes, this movie is iconic. And um, I feel like I do personally have to say that it was gifted to me in DVD form for my 13th birthday and is in many ways the crime that started it all. Um, but <laughs> there is um, there is a sequence, at, if you haven't seen it, you must watch it, in the Kenneth Branagh Much Do About Nothing, where when you mean the duel getting ready and then riding over the ridge sequence yeah and then like yes. it's basically like the soldiers are returning from you know non-specific war it's a non-specific 19th century time yes um and the main cast of men rides <laughs> on horseback in their like white uniforms like in over a huge a, line. <laughs> in a huge line like over this sunlit hill and then they like show up in messina and immediately like start yeah. undressing and bathing yeah. and it's like you know something just jogged my memory I told a friend a while ago that we were probably that we were going to talk about much ado about nothing you know on this podcast and I think I think this is an actor friend if I'm remembering correctly who was like oh are you going to talk about the opening of the Kenneth Branagh and all of the butts we see a lot of people's butts <laughs> we do it starts with butts and the thing is it starts with like men's butts I'm, to be clear i don't think we see the women's butts no there's some there's some tits out though and um Italy. and it's just how you gotta start but it's like this really he really really clearly wants to start the story with like a lot of flesh and sort of sunshine and like italian sort of water pouring everywhere and they like bathe in a fountain and it is a really like idyllic scene it's it's like late summer you know the whole movie has this sort of sun-drenched you know Tuscan energy but they all like rip their clothes off and jump in a fountain together and like wash each other in preparation for reuniting with the women and I think it sets up something explicitly that the text implies because it is a play that is so anxious and stressed about sexuality and like finds the relationships, the sexual and romantic relationships between men and women, like a source of such tension yeah. to begin with this image of two like communities of same sex people yes. existing in this state of complete like intimacy and freedom and yes. like just like joy in their bodies is like, I think that that is something that the text suggests, but we don't ever quite like see in the same way in the play itself because by the time the play begins it's like the men are 30 seconds away right but you know what's so interesting that you say that as I'm ruminating on it it is in a lot of ways such a brilliant opening to a story that continues to keep the homosocial sort of universes of women and men stratified across the play like you know I mean famously we toggle back and forth in this play between scenes of women doing stuff and men doing stuff and then you know the highest tension scenes are the scenes where the community gathers but actually most of the fun is had separately that's such a good point and it immediately makes me think of um the sort of contrasting example would be in love's labor's lost where similarly yes. the men and women are deliberately specifically sequestered from one another but like kind of spend all their time thinking of reasons not yes. to be anymore yes. and like looking for excuses to kind of find to communicate with each other whereas in right. much ado they sort of are not <laughs> they don't want to 
<laughs> no, they just keep drifting back to their like homosocial universes. It's really interesting, but that sense of comfort that's established of like, here are all these women bathing together, here are all these men bathing together. Yeah, I think it does visually in a really striking way, of course, because butts, um, something that the text upholds throughout the play, which is, and which is really like laid forth in the opening scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think the way that I would sort of describe it in the text is the contrast that especially Benedict sets up between like war and peace slash love and the yes. way that like if you're not at war and with the boys then the only other thing to do is be in love and I feel like that's like a dichotomy that him and Claudio and even yes. like Don Pedro they all sort of just accept that like these are the two yes. modes of being we're either at war or we're falling in love with women there's no other and, options and I think in this play sometimes they're gonna get a little muddled <laughs> yes well that was like really striking to me and this is something that I think maybe you wanted to talk about a little mm. bit is the way that after Claudio, you know, comes, sees Hero, sort of falls in love at first sight, slash is like, no, 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 I thought she was cute before, but I was thinking yes. about war, so I couldn't think about women, but now I'm not yes. thinking about war, so I can think right. about women. Right. And Benedict and Don Pedro sort of get in a fight over him, like a custody battle over their son. They do. Um, they do. But like even Don Pedro, who is nominally in favor of this and like on the side of like, oh my gosh, yeah, you should definitely woo her. Yeah. Sort of weirdly converts it into the language of war anyway. You I was take really her struck. Prisoner. Yeah. Yes. He says that like, you will take her hearing prisoner and she will be, you know, won over by the strong force of my amorous encounter. Like yeah. we're bringing in this language of like, oh yes, I can plan this campaign. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't work at all. His plan. No, it, no, his plan doesn't work at all. But the language of love as battle plan yeah. is really important to this play. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But it also weirdly suggests that like Benedict and Don Pedro, even as they're kind of arguing over custody of Claudio, are not as much on different pages as mm -hmm. they sort of seem to be at first glance. Yeah. Yeah. The men have a really particular way of thinking about how to, uh, yeah, how to right into battle love wise but yeah i mean i definitely do want to talk about that about that scene um i also kind of want to backtrack a tiny bit and talk about the way that benedict's friendship with claudio is established oh yeah because just because so the play opens before the boys even get here and we get the long sequence of butts um the uh, the first thing only in the movie only in the movie um shakespeare didn't write stage direction everyone shows their butt um <laughs> as far as we know. Um, but no, the play actually begins with a messenger who is sort of sassy but unnamed, um, riding ahead from the army to let the family know that they're close. And uh, so it starts with Leonardo, who's the dad, um, and the Duke, the governor, whatever, and his family getting the news. And um, immediately, we get informed that Claudio, who already knows Hero, is coming back. And then Beatrice asks about Benedict and asks about who he's hanging out with. And the language of he hath every month a new sworn brother is was, I thought, really striking language because I had never thought about it before. And I was like, why is it interesting? Like, you know, and she has that text too of like, he wears his faith, but as the fashion of his hat, you know, like he ch it ever changed, you know, of like the, the, the fact that like, he's obsessed with someone new 
every five minutes, but always really intensely, you know, and all of that language of he will hang upon him like a disease and stuff. I was just like, what are we talking about here? And then the answer is he is most in the company of the right noble Claudio, you know? And so like they're introduced as a duo, but in which Benedict is sort of like the senior member and the implication that his like friendship is very intense or like, you know, I, I thought it was, it's an interesting way to introduce the two major male characters in the play. I think it's interesting that you say that Benedict is introduced as a senior member because my reading of that exchange was always the opposite. That he's really? like the lackey or the hanger on who sort of attaches himself to a new, like, I, I think it's implied mm-hmm. to be, you know, wealthier yes. buddy. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. And I mean, there's that whole run of jokes of like, God help the noble Claudio if you have caught the Benedict, like he's a, you know, like he's a disease. Well, yeah. And he says it'll cost him however much a before pound, yeah, to be yeah. cured, <clears throat> excuse me, to be cured. And yeah, I, I always took it as a little bit a jab at Benedict, who I think despite his position in like the narrative is yes. always implied to be in a subordinate position to the other two sort of socially and within the military. Yeah, in terms of sort of direct rank, I think, but what I'm, I guess the thing that gives me that um, feeling sort of interpersonally is the latter half of the scene where Benedict and Don Pedro are sort of fighting over Claudio, like we set up, because it always feels to me, just because of Claudio's youth, that the triangle is the way it is because Benedict and Don Pedro have sort of more experience and Claudio is sort of looking to them in terms of like, how do I conduct my, they seem to have some, not only a stake in the choices that he makes in romance or marriage, but like he seems to accept that they have a stake in some way, you know, like. Yeah. I think that, I think that you're absolutely right in terms of what the relationship actually plays out as, but I still think that a little bit, I mean, partly because Beatrice is just trying to insult Benedict. Well, right. The the, the dynamic that she is implying, I really think is one of like, he is a hanger on, he attaches himself to people, which is really interesting. I hadn't really thought of it until just now, but it's like, I feel like I almost want to make the case that she's implying a little bit of a like favorite relationship that Benedict goes around and Mm -hmm. not out of, you know, affect, not out of true deep friendship, out of self-interest, attaches himself to more powerful people, leeches their money, and then, you know, flits away to find a new mark. And I think it becomes clear that that is not what's happening. But I think that like the sort of sense of, Benedict is not only an, uh, you know, not interested in being with women, not a good lover of women, but he's also maybe not a good or appropriate friend of men either. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing is it's just, it struck me that it's interesting that we've spent the first scene talking about the friendship between men that we haven't even met yet. And then pretty soon they ride into the play and we can draw our own conclusions. But like the fact that that's the fodder of the first actual five minutes and you know I mean like uh, the yeah just I love that thing that you just pointed out about like he's okay so he's not great with women we learn he doesn't have a lot of credit there we learn that immediately but yeah we also learn the same about the way that he interacts with other men it's so interesting that like I mean what's the exchange of uh, a good soldier to a lady but what is he to a lord is an interesting question, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, 
it's interesting the sort of joke you made a second ago about like what is Leonardo's rank or title and like he's clearly the sort of lord of this area but like the specifics of what that mean aren't clear Pedro's a prince Claudio's a duke slash count um but Benedict seems to be the only one amongst them who doesn't have a title and the sort of class disparity is such an Mm -hmm. essential part of what um of that like kind of favorite relationship that you sort of see occurring and like when people in the time period get really anxious about the idea of like maybe this relationship between two men is not appropriate like a key element of that is always when it's a relationship between two men of a slightly different class or very different class as the case may be um and so I think that like there really is perhaps something more to the way that like Benedict's class is mocked Mm -hmm. throughout the play. And I think ways that like don't play now because it just doesn't really, it doesn't, it's not quite in terms that makes sense, but the way that he's always talked about is like, you're a follower, you're a jester, you're a fool, you're a hanger on, like you are not their equal. Right. I mean, yes, I was thinking ahead. I think you're absolutely right. I was thinking ahead to the, you know, she said I was the prince's jester sort of moment. And, you know, I think that like, even though the class disparity doesn't necessarily play for a contemporary audience, I think the idea of sort of like um, him being sensitive about being the friend that is sort of awkward and just here to be funny um is something that plays you know and even just mm-hmm. the fa- and, and also like Beatrice understands that about him and pokes it I mean even in that first conversation you know their dialogue beginning with I wonder that you should still be talking Senior Benedict nobody marks you is like <laughs> everybody everybody understands what that feels like so. yes yeah absolutely but yeah I think that there's there's something in specifically this swirl of like yeah we get set up to wonder like so because we meet the idea of Claudio first, even though Claudio is like very much a less interesting or important character. Um, And so we're sort of primed to be like, so who is this guy and what is his relationship to these other men? Right, right. That's what I think is most interesting about it. Yeah, absolutely. And then that gives way to, it turns out his relationship is like him and Pedro are Claudio's two dads and they both have differing views about what their son should do. Right. And the thing is like, and Claudio has sequential conversations with them in this act. He first has a conversation with Benedict where Benedict makes a lot of fun at his expense of the idea that he's leaving. And also this is a, this is a core idea for Benedict. So it's good to introduce it right away that immediately one of the conflicts of the play is Claudio's like, we're back. I'm in love. It's peacetime. We're back. I'm in love. And Benedict is like, Oh God, like, damn it. I, you know, immediately How dare you <laughs> he frames it in a way as a betrayal and also an abandonment mm-hmm. like you're leaving me yeah you know and I mean that's what it continues to be about all of the stuff around shall I never see a bachelor of three score again it's like I'm gonna be the last man standing wifeless and mm-hmm. you know you kids keep abandoning me is really the energy of that whole exchange and then when Claudio turns to Don Pedro and you know ends up having their conversation where it's much more sort of sober and I think it moves from prose into verse and he has like a whole conversation with Don Pedro about like you said the the thing about you know war thoughts have left their places vacant and in their rooms come thronging soft and delicate desires or whatever and then Don Pedro's like don't talk attack 
Yeah, it's so, I mean, it's, I, yeah, I'm just, I think we'll return again to the idea of like, there are two modes only, right, right. but also I think that you have introduced so brilliantly, like a key idea for this play, but also I think for like every comedy we're going to talk about, which is yes. like, can you get married and still have the same relationship with your guy friends? Yes. Yes. And you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's true in some of the tragedies too. Of course, you saying that sentence made me think of Romeo and Juliet, you know? Just yes, the, thing the, of like, the most comedy-esque parts of Romeo and Juliet, but yeah. 100%, can you, can you fall in love and keep your friends yeah. as a man particularly, although maybe as a woman as well? Yeah, it's the women are less concerned about it. Yeah. But, and it just is, I think it is an open question to just like place over Shakespeare's canon of like, yes. why are the relationships and feelings you have with men and the relationships and feelings you have for your wife slash future wife seem to be drawing from the same kind of pool of available affection. 100%. And therefore, socially, sometimes diametrically opposed. Yeah. Off, you know, of like, you can't, you can only be giving one or the other. Exactly. So... Shall we move on then? Having set up all these ideas, yes. act two. Um, Ooh, wait, one tiny grace note yes. about the evil people. Oh, yes. Um, a grace note about the nonsensically evil people first. So, so I'm fascinated by Don John, the villain of Much Ado About Nothing, because he's potentially the tersest, most inscrutable villain. And we meet him in the scene when the army, you know, returns to Messina and everybody has fun banter times and then suddenly remembers that Don John is there. Leonardo welcomes him. We are informed that some mysterious something has occurred between him and Don Pedro of like, maybe a familial, maybe a state, maybe a marshal. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the like edition that I was reading like had little scene recaps at the beginning of every scene. And they openly were like, having just been at war with Don John. And I was like, whoa, I don't know that we necessarily can draw the conclusion that that's what the war was about. But then again, I, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, the only direct information we ever get about it, TBH, is Conrad saying you have lately stood out against the prince, your brother, and tamed newly into his grace. I think that's the only Leonardo refers to it as well in the first right. scene when he greets Don John, he says something along the lines of, since you and your brother are friends again. Right. Be reckon right, be reconciled. Right. And then the thing is, when he says he welcomes him by saying, You're right, be reconciled to the prince, your brother. Um Don John's first famous first words of the play are, I thank you. I am not of many words, but I thank you. And, and then that's the end of his part of the scene. And he basically, he only has like 27 lines in the play. Like he yeah. never explains himself. We never learn what happened. So you mentioned his first line. I was really struck by the fact that his second line, his, the next scene that we see him in right. is it begins with a sentiment that immediately I was like, this is exactly the same sentiment as the beginning of Merchant of Venice, where somebody ah. is like, which, you know, begins with the, you know, hard to read oh. as anything but gay Merchant Antonio saying, in yes. sooth, I know not why I am so sad. And that's yes. exactly the sort of sentiment that we get from Don John is this sort of feeling he, he introduces himself, except for that one line with this sort right. of sense of just like rootless, restless. And as he sort of admits, pointless. Yes. 
melancholy so and right. discontent. I hadn't clocked that. So his first line in that scene is, there is no measure in the occasion that breeds, therefore the sadness is without limit, right? Yeah. Yeah, and so- He's asked, he's, why, my Lord, are you thus out of measure sad? And yeah. Right, right. It's so, that's such an interesting connection to draw to the Merchant of Venice, honestly, because so like we are introduced to the character in company by him saying, I'm not of many words, but I thank you. Smash cut to, he has two sort of like scheming intimates that follow him throughout the play, whose relationship to him is never questioned or explained. Their names are Conrad and Baraccio. And people, often explicitly queer the relationship between Conrad and Don John for, for what I think are several reasons. But I think that you sort of just pointed to a big one, which is just that like, we meet a guy who's like, I don't talk very much, thanks. And then immediately he's shown having a deeply confessional, intimate relationship with another man who remains one of the two people he ever talks to for the entire play and the thing is like so you referenced the Branagh we're already there so just to just to quickly say that perhaps the best known version of this scene is in the Branagh much ado about nothing in which our lord and savior Keanu Reeves plays Don John and is being by firelight like deep tissue massaged by Conrad in this scene He's being like literally oiled. He's wearing like leather pants and is being oiled by Conrad. And the thing is, textually, I don't feel like it's a wrong choice. I think it's interesting that there is this feeling of we need to imply a reason. I think that I've yes. seen it because I've also seen a spate of women playing Don John. Right. And then it is a similar sort of sense of like, we need to root this character's sense of alienation in something. And maybe exactly. it's that she is the only woman in this world of men, or maybe right. it's that he is gay or like, you know, right. I think that that was sort of implied to be when the Orient Shakespeare Festival had an actor in a wheelchair play it, this hint was like, maybe it's because she's disabled. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an interesting impulse that like, to not want to just take mm -hmm. take him at his word that like there There's this no just is this is just who I am I think that's brilliant but I, yeah it's it feels like an irresistible opportunity and a necessity to fill in the blank for a director I totally understand that impulse because Shakespeare just doesn't explain him and you get this backstory of, of disenchantment or um you know like disenfranchisement almost but no reason why it exists. He has these two intimate followers who like love him in a weirdly passionate way. Like this scene ends with, you know, uh, them concocting a plan and him saying, you're both sure and will assist me and Conrad says to the death, my Lord. Like they're like very into being Don John's dudes. And maybe this, and I'll shut up about it, but you know, as a bridge into the following acts, like every version of their stupid plan of trying to keep Claudio from marrying Hero, trying to, every version of their plan that they, that they attempt has to do with preventing heterosexual love from like taking root and for no other reason than causing like pain and embarrassment. You know what I mean? Like it's a strange. Specifically to Claudio. I mean, yeah. he does sort of say it's not about, it's about, I just want to mess with his life because 
Hmm. That young upstart has all the glory of my overthrow, he says. So he sort of implies that Claudio, um, he says, Claudio has sort of taken his place at his brother's side. But I mean, I think that this is something that Shakespeare does. And maybe it stands out in this play because it's a comedy. And so there's such a, I mean, like, Beatrice and Benedict are sort of some of the most well-rounded feeling characters in like the canon. So it really stands out to have this really kind of cardboard villain, but it's not unusual for Shakespeare to just be like, here's some backstory that sounds important and intriguing, but in fact, it doesn't matter. And we're just not going to think about it. (laughs) Yeah. It's not unusual, but I think of the villains that don't explain themselves, he explains himself the least. And so it is super interesting. And I, I watched, um, I also watched the Joss Whedon Much Ado About Nothing from 20, you know, 13 or 14 or whatever that was in preparation for this. And something I found striking um, is just that I had remembered this, but seeing it, I was like, oh, damn. He um, he maintains the romantic flavor between Don John and Conrad and makes it explicitly romantic, but casts a woman as Conrad. And so I found it interesting that like what a lot of other productions do, which is sort of imply, uh, you know, some kind of queerness around the trio of villains those two anyway because Baraccio has to be straight for the plot (laughs) but like you know well I mean you know he he could be bi but you know what I mean yeah totally but like it's it's interesting that he maintains the sort of erotic flavor but like you know makes it a woman to make it I don't know yeah yeah degaze it Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you see that a lot with sort of secondary Shakespeare characters that people cast as women and that it's like whenever people make Peter Quince in Midsummer yes. Night's Dream a woman and suddenly yes. she's like all over bottom and you're like, right. why? Just because it's like a heterosexual pair now, right. it has to right. be sexual. But anyway, yeah, no, I mean, I think, I just think that there's something interesting in, like if you root Don John's sense of alienation in his possibly being queer, you sort of automatically de-queer everyone else. Yeah, I think it, I think it can have that effect. Yeah. And so I think, uh, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I think that I think, yeah, as you say, I get why it happens. And I think there's yeah. definitely something in that. But I feel like yeah. part of the case that we can make is that like that's yeah. not the only place yes. these energies live. Yeah, onward. <laughs> Onward, um, yeah, Act Two, uh, which is um, a big party scene, mostly. Uh, I feel like this is an act that is like most striking for suggesting that, despite what we said at the beginning, that these are groups of people who know each other, they do not seem to know <laughs> each other at all. Everyone is so confused by everyone else's motivations at all times. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And even like, you know, you can get away with a lot by putting people at a masked party, which is what this is and is often, you know, or at least often staged. Yes. Only the men are in masks. This is my pet peeve. In this and in Romeo and Juliet, only the men are in masks. Right. They say this very explicitly. It is not like a masquerade. This is like a thing where like, I don't know if it's Shakespeare riffing on something he heard they did in Italy or if this is something that like happened in England, but like young bucks showing up in disguise. Henry VIII did it all the time. Yes. It he, yeah. showed, showed up in, you know, to, to be like, oh, it's me, I'm king. Halfway oh, through the party, yeah. so everybody could be like, oh my God. Yeah. Right, right. This is a dumb pet peeve, but it bothers me because like it literally, it's old. There's no risk that the women are not being recognized. It's only the men. 
Well, in a way, that's super interesting to emphasize because not knowing which of the men, actually so interesting because you've already brought up Love's Labor's Lost and there's also a scene where the boys all show up in weird disguises in Love's Labor's Lost. But anyway, now my brain is thinking about that. But um, yeah, it's so interesting because so many different flavors of the story that branch off in act two have to do with people not knowing who each other are. (laughs) Yes, I mean, and that's like, the repeated problem. And I think yeah. there's just, there's a thread in this act of people can't express their true feelings for good or ill directly to the other person. They either have to do it through someone else or like hear it secondhand. Like there is just a mass mm. inability. And actually it's really interesting because like then when we finally get Hero and Claudio face to face to try and confess something, all he can say is, Silence is the perfectest herald of joy. I were but little happy if I could say how much. Like, he's like, there's no, I can't use words for this. There's no, and actually, I want to like put a pin in that because that's Mm. a thought I have about the end of the play as well. The idea that like, actually, this isn't something you, these aren't feelings you can directly express face to face to the other person, which on the one hand is like, yeah, I guess that's probably what love is. But on the other hand, it's just really interesting that it's like, so you are only capable of expressing love to and through people of the same gender as you. Ding, 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 ding. That's brilliant. And I mean, Yes. The fact that we set up the, the, the play continues to pool around these stratified groups of women over here and men over here, having conversations about and for one another. Yeah. And so, at, like I said in the beginning, there are these really high tension scenes where that can, those two communities swirl together. And the first one of the first massive ones is this big party in act two. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking like, God, how many are there? Like, Don John, knowing that it's Claudio, pretends to mistake him for Benedict. So that's one. Beatrice doesn't seem to realize that she's dancing with Benedict. Right. Um, Claudio thinks, Claudio and several other people think that Don Pedro is wooing Kiro for himself. On when his in fact own he's, behalf. Yeah, right? when in fact he's doing it on Claudio's behalf. But many mm. people are confused about that. Yeah. Um, and, and then- yeah. I think there's also the like deep oddity of Don Pedro's joking proposal to Beatrice. This, 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 this. Okay, I mean, yes. This is one of those moments where I've always found something so deeply strange and interesting about this moment. So Don Pedro, not a particularly, he's a, he's a socially and sort of sexually difficult character to map because really he, weird <laughs> yeah dude okay so like because don pedro's attitudes as far as we can track them start with his conversation with claudio and act one that we talked about where he's basically like don't talk too much us like you know let's have forth. an unnecessary like we'll have an unnecessarily convoluted scheme by which again yeah. i will woo her for in you. your behalf but that's the thing is what a strange offering like his thing is like let me get her for you and then give her to you it's very like it's that's Cyrano weird. de Bergerac and also like the ending of two gentlemen of Verona when like the way that Valentine and Proteus reconcile is by being like here you can have my wife actually if you want her as a sign of our friendship it's very much like yeah Don Pedro all- really wants to be 
a part of this relationship. Uh, yeah. It, when, you know, I mean, anytime you get, I mean, like the matchmaking impulse has like a little, I don't know, there's a slightly panderous implication. Like, you know yes. what I mean? Yes. I mean, and like in Troilus and Cressida, like the actual panderous character yes. that Shakespeare wrote is that is very Extremely much homosexual. the energy that he brings to trying to get Troilus and Cressida together. It's like, yeah. he will do what I can't for him. That's right. And so it's very weird to, because it's a completely unnecessary wrinkle of the plot. So why are you doing this on Pedro? And cause he's like, this is how he has fun. Um, on his shore leave um it's a very strange thing to do but like but then once it's all happened I think yes after the kids are brought together and Hero you know looks gorgeous and says nothing and then Claudio's like silence and then they you know and then Benedict and Beatrice like prompt them which is a really beautiful kind of funny moment where they're like kiss go yeah and then they leave Benedict I know not Benedict um Don Pedro and Beatrice have that conversation where she is talking about everybody getting married but her it's that great little speech that starts with a good lord for alliance thus goes everyone to the world but i and she makes a joke a very contemporary joke to him about like him being the perfect man because he's sort of you know he's rich and a prince and whatever and she's like do you have any brothers like <laughs> do you, you know which is also weird because his brother is in the play but um yes Don Pedro. His illegitimate you know, I, brother. Not that much is made of that, but. Right, right, true, right. But um, she she makes like, a, you know, that a very sitcom joke of like, are you sure you don't have any brothers? And then he literally proposes marriage to her. And yes. Then, and then and she rejects him. It's super <laughs> awkward. And it's just so, I know that we, so we, we go way back, me and Emma. Um, and we had the same Shakespeare professor in college who made the argument yes. that like, this can't be a real proposal because Don Pedro is literally a prince. And like, this is not how royal proposals work and blah, blah, blah. But it's also like, then why is it here? Yeah. What does it mean if it doesn't mean the thing what it appears it to mean? Yes. And um, so the text is, let me see if I can remember it. He says, um, you know, she says, I have your grace and a brother like you. Um, father, yeah. You know, yeah. Got excellent husbands that make you come by them. And then he says, will you have me lady? And yeah. then she says, no, my Lord, unless I might have another for working days, your <laughs> grace is too costly to wear every day. And then she sort of apologizes and is like, I was just born to make jokes. And then there's a line that Leonardo has, which implies that he's been listening to this whole exchange. And this line is often cut where Leonardo says to her, like, Hey, will you look after that stuff I told you to do? Why don't you go do the thing? And like, it's so, yeah. And it's often when it's not cut, it's played as like her yeah. being like, uh huh, I'm gonna, thanks. I, I have, oh, my phone's ringing. And like, yes. right. And then she's like, thanks, uncle. <laughs> Bye. Bye. And then Don Pedro and Leonardo have a conversation that sort of starts with Don Pedro saying, wow, you know, she cannot endure to hear tell of a husband. And that leads him into making the plan that sort of governs the whole rest of the play, which is let's all as a group, you know, con her and Benedict into, into admitting that they're in love with each other. So this never occurred to me until you laid it out like that just now. Okay. 
It is literally the engine of this play is self-sacrificing bisexual icon Don Pedro, who is in yes. love with both Beatrice and Claudio, is like, well, yes. I can't be with either of them, so I'll just set them both up with other people. We are the only love gods, self-sacrificing <laughs> but it really bisexuals. Is, it's exactly what he does for Claudio. Yes. And I I I mean, I just said, why is the proposal there? Yep. It's maybe it's there to say this is the emotion that Don Pedro is making this weird meddling choice from. Yes, yes, yes. She, I mean, that's literally, this is the thing with Shakespeare where it's just like, you can, you can talk about it forever, but on the scene level, it's in that order for a reason. You know what I mean? This happens, then this happens as I mean, soon as she leaves the room. And it really is that like, the, the dichotomy we've set up between love and war means that by saying, oh my gosh, I'm in love, Claudio is implicitly rejecting mm -hmm. Pedro as well. Because what he's right. saying is, when you leave, I won't come with you. I'm not right. going to be a soldier anymore. I'm getting married. Right. So it really right. is like the same rejection. Okay, in that case, I can insert myself into this relationship. Yes. I. <laughs> yes, yes. And then Beatrice, do you want to marry me? <sighs> no. All right, I've got an idea for the rest I know. of this play. I'll flirt with Benedict on your behalf. Yes, 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 which is genuinely it. That's what happens next. And that is what I just found something reading the play through this lens. It was just mm. so interesting to me that the only way Benedict and Beatrice can hear about love and believe in it is Benedict to hear a man say it and Beatrice to hear a woman say it. It's like they need a gay flirtation by proxy in order to like be interested in the idea of love. That is so smart. <laughs> I think we should all just take a minute to absorb it. It's genuinely, it's, it's sequential set piece proxy wooing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's what the scenes are. And, you know, it's like they're fascinating and, and like rich, weird opportunities for a director. Like they're, they're, mm -hmm. they are, they're really fun and interesting, hard scenes to do mm -hmm. those those wooing scenes because it's the and, same joke twice in a row. Right. Which means that the second one can't be the same. Yeah. You which know? is and mean so of Shakespeare to do. It's hard and people do often struggle with how, and you know, sometimes um, the the ladies wooing scene is sort of drastically reduced or even moved in adaptations mm -hmm. so that they aren't sequential. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, but, um, but yeah, so I mean, like the next thing that happens is Benedict, none the wiser. I just want to, I mean, we can skip over it br briefly, but I want to a tiny bit touch some of the text that Benedict has at the beginning. So Benedict, the audience's homeboy. There is a fair amount of, of, uh, of direct address from him in this play, which I feel like we haven't really referenced yet. Beatrice too, but- um, Benedict has more though, for sure. He, he does. And um, he wanders on into the scene that will become the gulling scene where the boys have a fake conversation about Beatrice confessing her love, knowing that he's listening. Um, and it starts with a big monologue that Benedict has about Claudio. <laughs> And about he's the fact still that really mad. He's bro, you mad, bro? Oh, are you mad, bro? And mm. it starts with him being really mad and sort of soliciting the audience's sympathy mm -hmm. about the fact that Claudio is changing and is more interested in girls now than the things that Benedict loves. And it contains <laughs> the text, you know, 
it's got all these long runs of this and not that, you know, I've known when there was no music with him, but the drum and the fife, now would he rather hear the tabor and the pipe? I've known when he would walk 10 miles a foot to see a good armor, now will he lie 10 nights away carving the fashion of a new doublet, like that whole thing. And it's just a long list of sort of complaints about like, he used to be like this, now he's like this. And it sort of wraps up with Benedict saying, you know, may I be so converted and see with these eyes? I cannot tell, I think not. And then, you know, fairly quickly the boys walk in. And of course the, the irony that Shakespeare is employing is the fact that this is the scene where he will, you know, be converted. he will change his mind. Yeah, where he will be converted. But the fact that we start with this complaint about Claudio's changefulness and then the way that you set it up, which is so brilliant, is like, you are about to be converted by other men. Yes. It's, yeah, it's just, I I had never, it had never occurred to me again until I just like read it through this lens. But yeah, it really is that like, I mean, and it's not that him and Beatrice aren't flirting. No. Before, but there's something about like, again, the fundamental mistrust between men and women that is the backbone of this play even extends to, he couldn't, he would never believe that Beatrice loves him from her own mouth, which happens at the end of the play when they're given the opportunity to say that they love each other in front of other people and will not do it. And they can't, we will not do it. Exactly. Which is why they again have to be tricked, right? Yeah. And it's like, instead, he has to hear it from an incredibly elaborate sort of performance by (laughs) the others. Claudius is over, uh, Claudius overzealous improv is also a little gay. Just say that. Um, <laughs> not not all theater boys are gay, but that one is. Um, <laughs> oh, Claudio. Um, but yeah, I mean, and it's also the other thing I find really striking about these scenes um, in terms of, again, this idea of not just the mistrust between men and women, but something you just said, the line you quoted about, you know, can I be so converted and still see with these eyes? Like, would yeah. I still be myself if I began to feel these things and I think it's the thing that always just leaps out at me is seeing Claudia with the men and then in the next scene seeing Hero with the women where she has a completely different personality in that she has one um (laughs) and that Hero and Claudia are both people who are incredibly shy and cannot express themselves in mixed company at all yep they cannot be themselves in front of men or women and I think there's something yeah there's just something in the idea of like Benedict saying like wouldn't it change who I am as a person to behave this way and to feel this way with women as opposed to how I feel now and there's something to me yeah just in that this sort of secondary pair of lovers who I think are often unfairly dismissed as not really having personalities do they just cannot express them in the group scenes they can only do it in these small same sex enclaves right exactly and you know what's interesting too is that i think there's also an implication on top of that in certainly hero but sort of claudio as well that part of why they can't express themselves in mixed company is that in mixed company benedict and beatrice are always talking (laughs) i mean (laughs) you know what i mean literally what hero says she's like i have never gotten a word in edgewise in my entire life yeah literally she and i mean you know she she it's always been really significant to me and of course this is one of the things that you lose if you severely cut the women's going scene that 
you can't cut Hero's only opportunity to say what she really thinks, which she only has because Beatrice is hidden and cannot come out. And yes. so like she gets her in a situation where, you know, like this is like, an, I mean, yeah, I feel like as a sidebar, that's the best use of that actual scene is for people to learn what Hero, people and Beatrice in particular, to learn what Hero actually thinks, um, which is like, please God stop talking one day so that other people can think Um, but But, like you know hey but it is I mean yeah I just think it's really interesting that that is not a conversation she has with Claudio like I think that you know there's there's a different play Mm -hmm. where the one of the gulling pairs is Claudio and Hero yeah you know and the other pair is the dads of Pedro and Leonardo or something right. you know but there's a play where you mm-hmm. take it as an opportunity to give the secondary lovers more time together and Shakespeare yes. doesn't do that no he doesn't at all and it's really interesting of course in how that leads us forward in the play but yeah you know this is just such a this is a such a stupid small thing but because I was thinking about men hanging out together in weird groups <laughs> going through it this yes <laughs> men hanging out together <laughs> uh it's there's a weirdly, so I was just really eyes on Don Pedro after having the thoughts that we just articulated about the party scene. And there's an exchange that is, one of those exchanges that is in, this, in the play, but often cut, is the little conversation he has with the singer who sings the song at, oh, the, yeah. beginning, at the beginning of that Balthazar. scene. Balthazar, our homeboy Balthazar. There's, yes. there's a hidden one that gets cut in so many plays of Balthazar. But um, there's that little moment where like, it's like a weirdly flirty exchange. That's all yeah, that they I have a say. little flirt. They have a little flirt. They um, do. They do. And it's just weird to me that it's like it establishes a weirdly flirtatious masculine space even before the gulling starts. Yeah. The exchanges. Don Pedro says, I pray thee sing and let me woo no more. And then <laughs> Balthazar says, Because you talk of wooing, I will sing. And then he sings a song about women. It's a in weird front of this group of men. <laughs> It's a weird little moment. I mean, listen, yeah. Don Pedro has been twice rejected. Uh-huh. And the play, we're only in act two. <sighs> we're only um, in act two. So, yes. Yeah, so, but let's move into act three, which is uh, like a weird transitional act where a yeah. lot of sort of plot threads for the future get planted. Uh-huh. We meet Dogberry, who I don't think we have much to say. He doesn't come into it. <laughs> <laughs> Not today. Not today. <laughs> Stay outside, Dogberry. My God, honest neighbor. Um, But, you know, is key to the unraveling of the plots in various directions. Um, The two sort of things that really jumped out at me for Act 3, aside from the women's wooing scene and the edition I read was in Act 3, not Act 2, is the sort of, we get Beatrice and Benedict's, like, aftermath of their confession. And for both of them, it's like... Mm -hmm a physical transformation for the worse that's like a, that's right. a toothache and he looks sick and Be- Be- yeah. Beatrice is literally sick maybe like yes. it's sort of like they're hung over and just like yeah. messed up by yeah, succumbing to heterosexuality oh my god the hidden moral of much ado about nothing heterosexuality will give you a cold you will get it is literally an illness <laughs> I mean but it's not the cold. first time I mean again it's he who caught the Benedict like this is the thing, dude. Okay, that's so funny that the play starts with someone saying, with her saying, if he caught the Benedict, 
And yeah. then two acts later, three acts later, she like can't talk through her note. Like, you know. but yeah, it's just sort of, I just think it's really as a sort of stopping off point briefly, because yeah. there isn't yeah. much I think to say about this act. Like the, the aftermath of love is not, I mean, it's sort of like Hamlet. It's like, this is, is this good? <laughs> Okay, right. And before we jump over it, because I think that's totally fair, Act 4 has a lot more juice for us. I will say that the only thing really of note that happens in Act 3 is that Don John approaches, uh, you know, makes his initial approach to Don Pedro and Claudio. Yes, that about, is very important. About the about the, the thing that we're going to, the, the trap we're going to spring in Act 4. And um, he, it's where he plants the seed, you know, heroes, the lady is disloyal. Uh, it's where we get the fantastic line, your hero, my hero, every man's hero. Um, truly a petty gay thing to say. And um, it's where we get the pivot. As soon as Claudio has even been like been given the idea of this information, we get the pivot from, if it's true, then in the congregation where I should wed, there will I shame her. Yeah. Though, I mean... I I have to speak in Claudio's defense here a little bit That's because fine. I feel like people always act like we don't see the scene that happens next, which is he thinks he sees her yes. making out with a guy out her window on her wedding right. night, which yep. doesn't excuse what he does. But I feel like because we don't see the scene, people forget it exists. And they're like, he just believes Don John out of nothing. It's like, no, he says, show me. It's a really, you put your finger on a really interesting thing because some productions, of course, do choose to show it. Yes. Which which helps you in the understanding Claudio's perspective way, but harms you in the sense that Shakespeare then gives you a scene where Conrad and Baraccio have a whole conversation point by point about what happened. Yes. So it, it's either you miss what Claudio sees and you kind of miss a beat in his emotional story unless you're being really deft about it or like, you know, you feel a little mm -hmm. lost from him or you have to see the thing and then hear about this thing. And also, frankly, just on a practical level, what, what they think they've seen is complicated to manage visually. Yes. I mean, and I think that it is thematically intentional that we yes. don't see it because I the agree. whole question for Claudio beginning as we move into act four and into right. the wedding where he sort of fulfills his promise to shame her in the congregation where he should wed her is why isn't she what she seems to be why do when I look at her I see a person who seems innocent and seems good and seems like she loves me so why isn't she that and I think that it's really deliberate that we we don't get to see the proof yes. he has I because I think that so much of the ending of the play is about you have to just trust sometimes you yeah. can't just assume that things are what they seem to be yes and because you just said the word seeming 55 times <laughs> I'm gonna tell you that as we move into act four the big bad wedding um, I thought about Hamlet a lot during yeah. this act um, because, you know, seeming I will write against it. Um, yeah, rem remember who else hated seeming? <laughs> May it is. I know not seems. Um, I mean, I think Shakespeare hates seeming. I think that this is a recurring preoccupation for Shakespeare, and it is usually about women. Yes. Um, and I think that it is like the root of so many of his male characters' anxieties about yes. heterosexual romance is that yeah. like, why can I not be sure this woman is what she looks like? That's right. That's right. And 
And I think that like, not to, I'm just going to like make a sweeping generalization, but I think oh. like a big kind of pattern is that like comedies are the plays where the characters work out that sometimes the thing you see is not what it seems to be. And the tragedies are the plays where they don't. Yeah. Or they do and it's too late and everyone's yes. dead. <laughs> they and... don't until they've done a murder. Right. <laughs> The subgenre of they don't until they've done a murder, um, which frankly is most of them. But um, the consequence is coming home to roost. But, you know, so I was reflecting, if I may, backward a little bit to the conversation we had last time about Hamlet. And when we got to the nunnery scene and we were like, ah, this public repudiation of female sexuality by a man, the worst breakup in the canon. And then this week <laughs> I got to the bad wedding and I was like, oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I mean, mean this that's is the, the worst, worst breakup, breakup and this is the worst wedding. I think there's subtle differences. This is the red wedding of the Shakespeare canon. It's, <laughs> um, it's really, really bad. And also one thing I always forget, which is notable considering that I have worked on this play a couple different times. One thing that I always forget is how immediate it is. The oh, wedding yeah. begins and then he's like- Claudio cannot keep it together at all. He has no at no at all. point does he put up the pretense of like, yeah, we're just gonna, it's like he's up, he's, everyone's like, are you okay? Like from the beginning. No chill at all. And there's a lot that I, that I want to get into in the bad wedding really, but the seeming thing is first and foremost and the language. So yeah, the fact that we haven't seen what Claudio has seen, but we arrive the next morning having been so shocked to our core about it, that the language that he uses, you know, like the pampered animals that rage in savage sensuality. And like, she knows the heat of a luxurious bed and all of that stuff. It's like, it's horrible text. I mean, and it's, I'm thinking of Hamlet again, who can only describe sex with women in these just disgusting terms. terms. It's so, it's so just like gross. There's Give no this rotten orange to your friend is one of the worst things you could ever say yeah. to a human. No, I mean, and I think it just all comes back again to like, there is this fundamental distrust that shades really quickly into disgust. Yes. for the idea of women having sex and therefore the idea of having sex with women. Yes, and the disgust of this is a bad contract between a man I thought I trusted and myself. And on, on Don Pedro's end, this is part of what's shocking and gross about it is this is a deal gone bad that I brokered between men. Yeah, it's like you have betrayed me. And it's so striking mm -hmm. in contrast. I mean, and like, it makes sense in the context, but it is striking that like the thing Claudio is sort of forced to emphasize is that like my feelings for Hero had no sexuality in them whatsoever. That is such a good point. The fact that, no, yeah, the- the Like um, a brother to a sister. Yes, bashful sincerity and comely love, yes. Like a brother to his sister is the text. And it's just like, yeah, it's part of what we sort of learned from Don John and then sort of gets emphasized later when Baraccio is telling Conrad about all of this is like part of the goal is this will also alienate Don Pedro from Leonardo, which on one level makes no sense because you're no, like, no, he has no. nothing to do with this, but it's the idea that the bonds of trust between the men who have brokered this deal are 
in some ways more important than any sense of romance or sexuality between the man and the woman at the heart of it. And I think not to jump ahead too much, we sort of emphasize that when Leonardo and Claudio reconcile and the sort of term, I mean, obviously it happens because Hero's not really dead and they want to get them, but it's like the framing of it is don't worry, you can marry this other niece I have. There's another one. We can still be related. Right. Right. The sort of social familial bonds between men, political as as well, I suppose, are, you know, are the ones that are emphasized. And in the middle of this, poor hero is fainting on the floor of the church. (laughs) In a state of collapse. In a state of literal collapse. And so we have to... I really want to ask a weird question and go on a tangent, but we can cut it later if it's too long. So here's something that's always puzzled me, not to throw a weird dramaturgical problem at you in the middle of act four, but help. So the only, only reason that Baraccio and Margaret were able to, to, to make out at the window was like, where was Hero last night and where was Beatrice last night are questions that have puzzled me for so long in terms of handling this because like earlier in the play when Baraccio is like I'll make out with Margaret in her window and call her Hero and she'll call me Claudio and it'll be hot um he says he'll contrive a reason for Hero to be absent or something like that which is weird and then in the fallout of this scene when Benedict asks Beatrice like lady were you her bedfellow last night Beatrice says, truly not, but until last night, have I this 12 months been her bedfellow? What the hell are we talking about? Where was everyone sleeping last night? So first of all, I think that it's really unfair of you to expect Shakespeare to maintain consistency in details from one scene to another, something he has never given any pretense of doing. I know. But so it is a weird, like... (laughs) I think that it's hard for us to understand the extent to which like people in this time period did not have privacy. What she means by Mm -hmm. every night for this 12 month, I have been her bedfellow is that hero and Beatrice share a room and a bed, right? Like they sleep together every single night. My understanding, my like reading of what probably happened is that Baraccio got Margaret to sleep in hero's room instead as some mm-hmm. kind of wedding preparation. And that's why Beatrice is the one coming in from a different room the next the morning. Next morning. Right. Um, and so that is my, and I feel like probably what happened is that Hero wasn't gone. She was just asleep. Okay. That's that's the way I can, that's the sense that I make of it. Listen, is that that's, that's why Margaret was in her room. That's as close as I've ever heard anyone get. It's just the only reason I raise it is that it always feels like when we're all in the chaos adjudicating the details of how likely it is or how provable it is that this thing actually happened, it feels like it gets brought up as an important fact. Because in response to Beatrice saying that, Leonardo says, confirmed, confirmed. Would the two princes lie and Claudio lie? So I think that what that is, is that I think the argument that Beatrice is trying to make is that I've been with her every single night. She is not out with men every night. And what Leonardo hears is, so the one night she's accused of being with men is also the one night that you weren't there. So it right. must be true because right. she finally had the opportunity. Right. So 
forgive me for, for lobbing that textual no. problem at you. It's just something that I puzzled over a lot because, and I think that that takeaway is actually worth it in the, in the sense of like, she's never had an opportunity. And then what her own father takes away from that is like, except for this critical one. And yes. I believe the men and not her and not you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, he only believes Hero when he has a male proxy of the friar be like, yes. I'm pretty sure that she's telling the truth. And then he's like, oh, well, in that case, I'm really right. mad. Right. And then he goes into, well, if they've done her wrong, then even though I'm old, I'll kill them. Lots of conditionals in this play. There really, really are. And I know, so we've got to get into the Benedict Beatrice conversation that follows this whole explosion. Yes. Because I think that everything we've just said sets up really well what is like at the heart of this, which is Beatrice saying, it's them or it's me. Like she makes literal this tension that has been yes. expressed throughout the play up to this point, which is, if you love me, then not only will you leave your male friends, you will kill one of them. Yes. And people always laugh at kill Claudio. And I don't think it's funny at all. And it's I don't not. know why they do it. I think it's just a surprised laugh. It is a shock laugh, but, and it's like a weird, like ripple of relief after like the tension sort of dissipates. It's a, it's a gorgeous scene. It might be one of my like top, top in the whole canon, really. The, this Benedict Beatrice conversation. It's I do love nothing in the world so well as you is not that strange. Truly, truly the greatest. And also it's like the, they couldn't say, I mean, notably, we've talked so much already about how they can't say how they actually feel to each other. Well, like when everything falls apart around them, they can. I mean, like he says it in this moment. He does. She and still doesn't. She still doesn't for a while. But the, uh, you know, like out of this um, anguish and the kind of toppling of the entire social structure, this confession comes. And then, so the famous thing of bid me do anything for thee, kill Claudio, um, which of course, one of the great things about films is that you it, it can't be punctured by the audience's bad laughter. So you get that like insane, I mean, the reason for the Emma Thompson uh, Ken Branagh film is that scene alone is so titanically great. But um, he says his first text and response is, ah, not for the wide world. Yeah. And then she says, you kill me to deny it very well. And then they have to fight about like, no, you have to do, like, you have to do it. He's a villain. Like, well, I, can't, the way I it's, can't, yeah. It's the other, it's the sort of corollary of, I can, we don't, on some of it, we still fundamentally don't believe the things one another say. We will only believe the things that one another do. That's you right. said you love me and that's not enough. You have to show me that you love me. That's because right. Because they still just can't, it's, it's just, yeah, no well, one also, trusts anyone. No one does. And also critically for Beatrice, I think there's another kind of, not a queerness, not a queerness, but a, um, she needs his masculinity because she doesn't have any of her own. I mean, mm -hmm. the critical thing about that scene is, would I wear a man? Would, if I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace, you know? And so yeah. like the, the whole point is I can't be a man for me and for her. So you have to do it if you love me. Well, it's, and it's just like emphasizing the insurmountability of the divide between these two communities. It's like, I yes. literally can't like go over there and be in those scenes to kill him myself. No. You're allowed into those scenes. So you have to go do it. Exactly. Which introduces this thing that I've always sort of felt of like, 
because we've established these teams, the man team, the woman team throughout this whole play, effectively what happens now when Benedict is forced to choose Beatrice and act for hero is that he switches teams and mm-hmm. beco- he sort of becomes a woman sympathetically with the privileges of a man. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the sort of stage groupings from this point forward, you know, it used yes. to be we've got the three men and then we've yes. got the two women, sometimes extra women servants. <laughs> yeah. um, but now it is the sort of thing that rescues him from becoming that is Leonardo is there too. And then mm-hmm. we, I think on purpose, get this unnecessarily yeah. long and often cut scene where Leonardo and his brother also try to challenge Claudio and Don Pedro to a duel. And both of them are like, y'all are old. I'm Which not going to do so that. Rude. So rude. It's Although so rude, actually- but it's also like, I'm not going to fight you. You're I'm 20 and you're 70. But you know, it's like, even in that, I have a couple thoughts about that scene. I understand why it's often cut, but I think it has some of the most important text in it. I mean, Leonardo's thing of, you know, in terms of like, you've killed my child, but the, it always really strikes me his line where he says, you have killed my child. If, if thou killst me, boy, thou shalt kill a man. Yeah. That, that thing of like, you've already killed my kid, but if you kill me, Yeah, that'll be, I mean, I wonder as a director, as I was reading it this time, part of me was also like, it makes me uncomfortable to have this long and very moving morning speech for a character who Who we know isn't dead and we know they know isn't dead. Yes. Like it is just a bit weird, like from an, as an audience kind of to sit through something that's so deeply felt and yet alive. Well, here's the thing though. Here's the thing that I think about that. I think that's a brilliant point. I think the thing I think about that though, leading toward language that Hero herself will have when she's resurrected is that she is dead. Her good name is dead. Her honor is dead. And for her father, that was the thing that was worth losing, worth having, Mm -hmm. you know, the thing of like, yeah. My daughter's honor is dead. That isn't actually something that can ever be rectified. I mean, I mean, like it can, but something died. Yeah. And actually, now that you say that, it's also like the friar's bad plan, which I feel yes. like he does not get enough flack for the fact that it does not work. Yeah. Is that at the end, either way, she will go to a convent and be hidden away forever. So functionally, yes. even if Claudio repents, the plan is for her to kind of remain dead to disappear right and so so, he really yeah I think you are right he kind of has lost her the grief is real the grief is real because the bad wedding can never unhappen and he can never and also in the fallout of that scene her own father you know he looked at her and said he wished she was dead you know and like he looked at his only child and said I used to grieve that I only had one child and now I wish you had never been born and yeah. it's like it's Which one is, of the most savage things ever frankly. a go-to for Shakespeare because Lord Capulet says that too yeah he does say it in all in really similar words too it's a really similar sort of tableau of listen scene. you're churning out these plays you're like this works when it works when it works it works it's a barnstormer but yeah but um, yeah it's yeah I mean it's basically just like it's the act where any any pretense of these two kind of camps being able to cooperate completely falls apart. And yes. what we get is Benedict sort of being presented with the kind of symbolic choice that exists, has existed all along, made literal of right. you have to choose. Right. And the thing is, Don Pedro was something that I love the scene where Benedict shows up and challenges Claudio and Don Pedro and Claudio don't even understand what's happening for the longest time because of the role that Benedict has occupied in their social group. Like you said in the beginning, he's a he's the jester. He's a hanger on. He's a he's a, you know, 
they literally are like, oh, you showed up to cheer us up. Say, tell a funny story. <laughs> and then- Tell us a joke. Right, tell us a joke. And then he's horrified by their callousness, basically. Yes. And, you know, and then in the challenge to Claudio has, for my money, maybe one of the most badass lines that exists, which is, I will make it good with what you dare, how you dare, and when you dare, which is truly amazing. And then, and then when he leaves the scene, they're shocked. You know, they have that exchange of like, he's in earnest and most profound earnest. Like they can't believe that he has broken up with them. Yeah. I saw, not to digress too much, but I think that like often Claudio is cast, I mean, with good reason, because, you know, in the doing in the guise of the lamb, the feats of a lion or however they describe him in the first scene, you know, he's young, he's sort of soft. And I think he's usually cast that way. But I've seen a couple productions that really lean in in the casting to the fact that he is also an excellent soldier and that have really played up again, like in a sort of Hamlet-esque way when you watch Benedict challenge Claudio, give you a feeling of like, I'm not sure you're going to win that one, buddy. Like, I think that something is, we, it's in Claudio's rejection of a duel against Leonardo and the way he sort of very calmly accepts the duel with Benedict. We're sort of reminded, I mean- of the Claudio that in theory existed before who right. loved war and, yes. you know, would walk 10 miles to see a good armor. Like this is, right. he has reverted. Right. Right. But yes. And against his sworn brother rather than on yes. the same side as, I mean, it's such a, and Don Pedro is just sort of watching this schism grow in this horrified way, you know, Don Pedro, our, king of everything bisexual icon Don Pedro uh who's you know who's who's mechanism throughout the play has been to try to get these men married and now he's watching one of them swear to attempt to kill the other yeah you know and it's like a very strange scene but yeah I mean and then into that in the into the aftermath of the challenge like the 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 plot because of our neighbors uh dogberry and Burgess has come apart very quickly yeah it accelerates really fast from this point forward and this is where we get the thing that i mentioned before where leonardo's like well the way to fix all of this is i mean he literally says like you couldn't be my son-in-law but you shall be my nephew it's like don't worry we can still be related you can still marry a female relation of mine it's like oh good well we'll all be friends again Mm -hmm. kind of yeah because I was really struck this time reading it that at the beginning of the wedding, matters are still distinctly tense between Claudio and Benedict. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And Don Pedro and Claudio are now isolated down to a team of two. And the way that they walk into that, and also like they've had to endure sort of a, they've had to undergo a weird funeral rite that is usually like a strange note to strike in the production because it comes right before the ultimate finale. You know what I mean? And it's like, you have to actually like atone before you arrive at your wedding. It's a strange Mm -hmm. sort of like release and then renewal ritual. It's a strange thing, but they come into the, the scene together and I, the, the, I have a couple of different, I have a couple of different thoughts about this, but I w- it just occurred to me that the mistaken identity thing, the not really knowing thing, <laughs> it's tracks, here, it's back, <laughs> tracks all the way to the veiled brides. What do you make of that? 
I mean, yeah, it's, I mean, I think that, you know, it is thematically, right, coming back to this idea of like, Claudia, you just have to trust yeah. that she is who she says she is. Right. That you don't, you can't, you can't live your life trying to read the truth of her in her face because it's not there. She just right. is who she is. And you have to accept her without knowing her on mm. some level because you Gosh. can never know her. That's right. And I mean, you know what you just remind what you just made me think of is that you made a point a minute ago about there being a lot of conditional ifs in this play. And I think the most important one is the last thing that Claudio says before she lifts the veil, because you know, he's like, which is the lady? Um Leonardo or you know, one of the Antonio says, you know, this is the same as she. And um Claudio says, I am your husband if you like of me. Yeah. That's the last thing he says before the lift. Which and then, yeah, I feel compelled to note textually doesn't happen. They're wearing masks, not veils. And you can't right. take a mask off on stage because you have makeup underneath. Mm. I think I've actually self-promo. I have an article coming out about this. Uh -huh. um, I think that Hero and Beatrice both remain masked for the entire rest of the play. Really? Yeah. Hmm. I think that that is again part of this idea of like you don't get to see her you just have to trust hmm. interesting 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 well and you know the her text when she does speak speaks to this idea we were just talking about of mm -hmm. like you know she said like no I'm he says hero you know that Don Pedro says hero that is dead and she says one hero died defiled but I do live like the party line is like no I did die yeah. But now, but now I'm, but now I'm back Yeah, and we can start again, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. But it's just so interesting that like only after, so we have this mistaken identity we have, and this is, I feel like another argument in favor of the fact that they've not taken their veils off is that mm -hmm. Benedict says, okay, so which one's Beatrice then? Yes. Um, and then they, at the sort of 11th hour, Yes. Try to unconfess, which <laughs> yes. is just such a it's I mean, it's such a bizarre moment. But again, it's just it like the pervasive mistrust. And like, it just feels like this emblem of the fragility of mm -hmm. these romantic bonds that I know the, the slightest pressure and they will back away from it. All of yes. them. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I feel compelled to say that obviously we haven't talked about Benedict and Beatrice as lovers very much in this conversation because of what we've been talking about, but like, of course, rightly, I think people use their strange staggering sort of banter in this scene as a way to explore the, like, that's, a, that's very modern and very, it feels really nuanced and sort of real, realistic and compelling. You know, the fact that as soon as everyone, as, you know, it comes down to the last moment and they can't quite do it until the community rallies for one more trick, which like, when did they plan this? When well, right, this it's, it's funny to me that you use the word realistic because it's like, is it? It is absurd. Like it well, descends I mean, not, instantly not the, into, yeah. I know what you mean, but it's like you yeah. get this one second of something that feels sort of quote unquote right. realistic, but then it is instantly kind of can only be resolved by a circumstance that is completely silly. Yes, the letters thing, we should clarify that it's, it's that, Hero produces a letter Beatrice has written to Benedict and yeah. hands it to him and, and then, then Claudio the reverse. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous, but it's, yeah. Adorable. I mean, it's again, yeah. it's this idea, but once again, this like proxy. Yes. Sort of. And 
and critically, I feel we don't get to know what the letters say. No, they don't. They just read them on stage and then silently. The silently, which is like, of course, a, a comic opportunity that is golden. But then the text is here's our own hands against our hearts. And then you get the great like, come, I will have the and then they actually do have the mirrored conversation to what Hero and Claudio did when they came together, which is talk for a second and then peace, I will stop your mouth. It's like that great thing that you said of like, we can't talk about this anymore. We can only kiss about it. <laughs> But it's, I just find something like in these terms that we've been talking about where there's this like continual tension and mistrust and the sense that like to be with Beatrice, Benedict has had to give up the people who were most important to him in his life up to this point. Yeah. But our own hands against our hearts. I mean, it's a joke, but it's also just this very adversarial yeah. framing of like, I mean, again, they sort of make the jokes on it's like, well, against yes. my will, you know, and yes. like, it is a joke, but it's also like, okay, but- You've had to give up a lot for this. Yes. And Benedict in particular. Yes. And and um, the thing that you said about the tension at the beginning of the scene, I feel like it's important to to reiterate that the text that the gen, that the men have together in this moment is Benedict says to Claudio, like he literally says, I did think to have beaten thee. But as thou art like to be my kinsman, live unbruised and love my cousin. Yeah. And then Claudio says, like, I hoped you would reject Beatrice so that I would have an excuse to call you to account like, for it. Right. It's like the the sort of simmering violence between them is like only kind of suppressed because it's like, well, we're not friends anymore. We're relatives now. We're relatives. And that means we can be on the same side again. And if either of us hadn't married into this family, mm-hmm. we would still be at odds. We would, we would be fighting each other. The yeah. friendship is, in some ways, it's like the friendship is ruined no matter what, because we're not friends anymore. Now we're cousins, we're, we're cousins. brothers-in-law. Right, right, right. And the fact that that only gets, that the community gets reestablished because now it's all one family is a really significant thing, except for outlying bisexual icon Don Pedro. Well, they even say like, but they say like, you have to find a wife. It's like, That's find me a wife. Like if you, we need you, the only way you can join this group is if you get married too. We can't, we can't account for unattached men. It's, we can't have those friendships anymore. It's honestly one of the most interesting grace notes at the end of this play is the fact that Benedict looks at Don Pedro at the very end and says, Prince, thou art sad, get thee a wife. And obviously it's a joke based on like the gorgeous irony of everything Benedict said in the beginning about like, I'll never fall in love, blah, blah, blah. But like Don Pedro doesn't get any answering text. (laughs) No, and I mean, it really just does feel like the only way you can join this, we can't be friends with you anymore unless you're married too. Yes. And also it's weird that, like you said, like Don Pedro has been sort of serially rejected by Claudio effectively, and then Beatrice literally, and then Benedict literally and effectively really, except for now. And now who is he in the community? And then the very last thing that happens, which is an insane stroke by Shakespeare, is the messenger runs back in and is like, we caught Don John. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then literally Benedict's like, don't worry about it. We genuinely, we fully do not care. I mean, I do. I I like the unselfconsciousness with which Shakespeare, if something doesn't matter, is just like, this doesn't matter. Right. Benedict's like, we're at a party. Yeah. And that's how it ends with everybody coupled off. But with, I think 
we've successfully argued quite a lot of queer energy along the way. Yes, yes. Quite a lot of queer energy rippling throughout both the courtship and the uh, antagonism. <laughs> and sort of like uncomfortably and forcefully suppressed yeah. in the end. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot going on. So each week at the end of the episode, we decide what play we are going to talk about next time, both so that you, the listener, can perhaps read along mm -hmm. in advance and also so we can sort of extend our thinking based on the conversations that we've had. Um, yes. So what are your thoughts? Do you have an idea for a play for next time? Yes, I do. So as I was sitting with Much Ado About Nothing in the last couple of weeks, um, thinking about soldiers with intense bonds set in Italy who are weird with each other, I naturally started thinking about Othello. Splendid. I think yeah. there were a couple times when I sort of was almost referenced it and then mm -hmm. didn't. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, I think join us in two weeks time and we will be talking about Othello. In the interim, we are now officially up on all podcasting platforms that you could possibly desire. So subscribe, leave a rating, leave a review. We'd appreciate it very much. Um, yes. And of course, share the podcast with a friend if you think they would enjoy it. Mm -hmm. um, you can find us on Instagram. Yes, you can. At This Shakespeare is Gay. Or on Twitter at This Shakes, S-H-A-X is Gay. And we'll see you soon. Hey, goodbye.